I'm super excited about Skyrim or uh, Elder Scrolls Six coming out. By the way, I haven't even seen this news. Yeah, well, they announced that they're actually going to start working on it, so it's still oh, okay. going to be. It's going to be about a half decade. I won't be able to see it. I will go blind by the time it's there <laughs> because I'll be 80 years old. But knowing your grandkids will play it one by day. that time, I will have played through Skyrim 17 more times, and your books will be super well organized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the books. Speaking of books, <laughs> when is a superhero not a superhero? That's not a book. But we're also talking about a book today. But we're not talking about the book either. But we're talking about something based on a book. <laughs> Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Are we recording? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's our intro. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Cool. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All and back inside our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. And it's early on a summer morning. Oh, goodness me. How many people really ever want to be up early on a summer morning? Well, I certainly certainly did not this morning. Yeah. I really had a hard time coming in this morning. But, you know, the sun's up. It was a beautiful sunrise. It we got a little beautiful. bit of breakfast. We're here talking with you folks. It's all good. If we, it's all good things. Yeah, it's, it's just all, hard. It, it's hard to get past the the hump. Well, yeah, it's sort of, of like one of those things because you've got you've got away all those good things with the really really good thing of right. sleeping in a little bit longer. Right. And it was a. I will say it was slightly easier for me this morning, uh, and also harder in a weird way. <laughs> you know, just the way life likes to be in yeah. paradoxical terms because. Yesterday, I was playing with the kids. Uh, we're recording this after the 4th of July, right? Right. The day and after. The day after. Uh, and I was playing with the kids out in the backyard, and we decided – the kids were playing in the little pool, and they they convinced me to play with them, right? And so I get a squirt gun. I'm in my swimsuit, and we're having a war, and I have to you know fill up my gun in the pool – and every time I do, I'm exposed, and they're dumping buckets of water <laughs> on my head. And we're going back and forth. It's a blast. You know, it's very cinematic. It's almost everything's happening in slow motion. It's a beautiful thing. It's just like a commercial. Just like a commercial. And and after we're going for a little bit, and I'm filling up my gun this time, and water is cascading down <laughs> over my head once more and into my ears, I think, oh, I can. I can also be on the offensive if I just switch to filling up my gun with one hand. I can use my other hand to like grab my children and undercut them and <laughs> you know take out their knees and send them falling onto their backs and heads and elbows and whatever. <laughs> yeah, just like a good dad just does. Just like a good dad does. And so I do it and I'm successful and I, I send both my eight and six year old sprawling down, sprawling and they think it's Blood. great. But then streaming down. I felt a strange sensation in my right lower back. Oh! <laughs> and I thought, Lord, why must we age? <laughs> As I could not straighten up and I'm still hurting in my right lower I spent the rest of the day uh. almost having to be on my back on my bed because I'm old now. So was that your first twinge of old age? Was that your first real hint? Uh... 
you know, at it's, the at the age of what twenty eight? Uh, almost twenty nine now. Almost oh. twenty nine now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and still, I can't complain too hard because I was doing something dumb. I was doing something that could injure a much younger man than myself. <laughs> When you're bent down on a slippery surface and then you're like trying to reach and wrench things away, like that's just like children. Really, it's a sports injury. Let's (laughs) just be real. Exactly. It really is. Uh, You know, it's not old age. So, you know what? I take it all back. I take it all back. Yeah. Except to say that I'm I'm in pain. Of course. What would be the sport? I mean, I would agree. I mean, there's some sport like activities here, but clearly it's not exactly like playing football. Not like football. It's really a lot more like um, American Gladiator. American Gladiator. Yeah. It was an American Gladiator injury. It was. So. All right. What up? So if I happen <laughs> to like have to be standing up and down in the middle of this show, it's because I'm trying to like alleviate pressure on my my back. All right. Well, that'll be. I'll be watching for that. If if oh. your voice starts fading in and out because you're standing and walking away from the microphone, I'll just remind you. Yeah. Like, hey, we're recording here. Yeah. Um, I'm but, sorry to hear about your back. But yeah, you know, it, I've been dealing with old age for a long time now. Right, a long, long time. Yeah, and yeah, it's no fun. I mean, just going to bed. Seriously, you go to bed and you get up and you think every part of my body hurts at five o'clock in the morning because you're staying so still. It's yeah, that's what you have to look forward to. Because <laughs> I mean, you've been you've been dealing with this 28 year old body pain. For 50 years now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> More like 70. I mean, you, know? you're, you're, you look great for a 97-year-old. Yeah, but, I, I feel like I've held up know. well. But but we're talking about a movie that's almost 97 years old. That's right. So. <laughs> what a nice transition that was, Jake. Yeah, today we've got uh, a great little, great little conversation for you because we're going to be talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, which was on Paul's backlist hall of shame. And... I didn't say this before, but it was also on my backlist hall of shame. I hadn't. Oh, seen so it. you hadn't seen I it? I hadn't either. seen it, and so it was a good. It was a good experience for both of us, and then we're going to talk about that. Um, and later on, we're going to be talking about Incredibles two. We're actually going to send you guys back in time to a live recording in the past. We're going back That's to right. the future. Live right? recording in the past um, of Paul and I moments after we saw Incredibles two. Yes. And uh, so, I mean, this is pretty exciting. We're, we're literally going back to the past, and then we're going back to the future, and it's just a fantastic day. Yeah. Feels... That's why I got up this morning. <laughs> exactly. For the time travel stuff. Time you know, if we, could, if we could extend that a little bit, maybe we could go back in time, record this podcast, go back to bed, wake up fully refreshed. Yeah, Wouldn't see, that be nice? That's, that's the problem with time travel. Like, everybody's trying to go back to the, you know, Revolutionary War or to see Socrates... Or Socrates, as some would say. Socrates. And you know what? Really, all I would do is get myself some extra sleep. Like I'd rewind time three hours and get some more sleep. <laughs> and then I'd rewind it again and get some more sleep. And then I'd be waking up at 5.30, but I've slept for 15 hours. See, that sounds ideal. Right? I'm Pretty all great. for that. But since we can't do that, it's time to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. Here we are inside the backlist hall of shame. It's shameful place. Dark. Dark, dingy. Dank. Spider webs. Lights flickering. Yeah. Lots of things undone. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a... shame. There's just The walls a, are lined with regrets. 
<laughs> the walls are lined. Yeah. It's a place of sadness, deep sadness. It's a poignant stench. But we're trying to of close unlived down. dreams. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're trying to close down. <laughs> one you know, by one. Bit by bit. One by one, the displays that are in our, our hall of shame. Yeah. Um, and move them into a happier place. And we, we packed up one for, for Paul and I. This yes. time with yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird. These are movies that we really should have seen a long time ago, but never actually did. And so now we're going through them, trying to uh, to watch them and, and talk a little bit about them and see whether they were actually worth seeing. And yeah. and so far, they all have been. I mean, I would relatively agree. for for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you might disagree about that with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, except for that one. But you would be wrong. Yeah. I mean, but you know what? That's almost a 90% success rate, so I'm not going to complain about that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, now, Paul, you noted uh, that for To Kill a Mockingbird, for being as famous as it is and having a book and a movie, that when you Google To Kill a Mockingbird, the book actually still comes up first. Right, which is unusual. I, I think that typically when I Google something um, and it has a book and a movie, the movie almost always comes up first. Yeah. And... It's interesting because this movie is super famous. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, I think. It won three. Um, It gave us one of the great cinematic heroes of all time. And yet the book pops up first. Now, have you read the book? I have read the book. Oh, good. And you have read the book because you read read everything. I did read a lot as a child, and I did read this book. So when did you read it? Uh, I would have been probably around 13 or 14 when I read To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I was 43. (laughs) So we were probably reading it about the same time, like just concurrently when you match up our timelines. (laughs) That's exactly right. Just kidding. That psychic connection. You're not that old. (laughs) You were probably still. You were probably still in your. uh, No, you were definitely still in your 30s when I was 13 or 14. Oh, uh, yeah. I read it way before Paul did. You did read it way before I did. So did you have to read it for class? Uh, Did Did I read it for school? That's a good question. It's hard to say. Here's the thing. It's hard to say because I grew up homeschooled. Mm. 11 out of 12 years. Oh, gotcha. And so at at some point, that's one of the beauties of homeschooling is that almost everything is for school, you know, except for it's it's you, you can't quite make that stretch for Calvin and Hobbes. Though eventually, <laughs> eventually yeah. I could just call it a historical document. I bet you they're teaching Calvin and Hobbes in, in college now, actually. Yeah. Don't you, you think? You totally could. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of existential quandaries in there that you could tackle in a college philosophy course. Oh, absolutely. Um, or ethics, you know. It's like, a very deep comic strip. It you really know, Bill is. Watterson, I think he wrote Calvin and Hobbes to be a college cl- curriculum. But, so all to say, <laughs> I don't, I can't, re- I don't remember if it was an assignment. Yeah. Or not. Mm-hmm. So, I, I can't say. Yeah, see, I think that the, the reason I read it was guilt. Really? You know, again, because because it's one of those books that you hear about all the time. I knew nothing about it. I knew sort of the, the little bit of the stuff around there. I knew that Gregory Peck starred in the movie, and people always talk about it. And so there was some sort of push to get people to read it. Like, it, like around our town, um, the library actually sponsors a book every once in a while, like during the summer, where everybody reads this particular book. Um, one year it was Frankenstein. One year it was To Kill a Mockingbird. And so I actually sort of hopped on the, the bandwagon then, read it, was really glad that I did. It was – it's a really nice book. It is. But I have to say coming into this movie, I was interested to see how it would translate because so much of the story in the book is driven by 
Scout, this little young little girl, right. and her kind of internal narrative. Mm-hmm. And so ha- that's always tough to adapt into a movie. Right. When you have to get out of a character's head, be- when so much of a story is driven around what happens in that character's head, that's tough to translate into a movie. It is. It is. And I think that they did it fairly well in this one. Just to give, Just to give a big broad brushstroke over what To Kill a Mockingbird is about. It's, it takes place in the Deep South, um, and you have this, this lawyer uh, who lives in a small town called Atticus Finch. It's right during the, the Great... The town is not called Atticus Finch. No, the no, lawyer's, no. The name, lawyer's is name is Atticus Finch. Finch. takes place in, in the heart of the Great Depression. He has two kids. He's a widower. He has two kids. Scout and Jem are their names. Um, but he is asked to defend uh, a, a black man over the charge of rape. This black man has been charged with raping this this white woman. In the Deep South, obviously, that becomes, in the Great Depression, that becomes a huge, huge issue. He has been asked by the court to defend this black man. Um, and so that, along with Gem and Scout's um, day-to-day existence in their in this little town and how they deal with their neighbors and how they deal particularly with this really mysterious neighbor um, who has supposedly this this guy locked away in an attic for killing people and all this kind of stuff. It's sort of a haunted house type of story. Um, it all sort of wraps up in this really beautifully, wonderfully told story that is – it feels both – Innocent and profound, I think, is is the way you could say. And I think that that goes for both the book and the movie. Yeah. For all the things they have to change for the movie to keep the story moving along and because it can't dwell as much on the day-to-day life of the kids as the book does, it still captures just a sense of childhood Mm -hmm. where – as you're coming of age, there's a certain age and I think that's sort of the brilliance of what's caught here where – Although you're starting to understand the weight of some of the affairs of adults and the messiness of the world of adults, there's still this childlikeness running through it. And so although this is a very dark story. It's a very dark story. It never feels entirely oppressive. Right. Because of the nature of childhood. Yeah. But at the same time, it doesn't whitewash over... The, the real the issues darkness. involved, yeah. yeah, and the real issues. In fact, it brings a sense of poignant insight that I think is lost on a lot of us as adults when we start to lose the innocence of childhood, and that's part of the beauty of the story. Yeah, I think one of the the interesting choices made by Harper Lee, the original author, was was telling it through Scout's eyes because she's really the youngest person here, and at a point where she only knows um, only only knows obliquely what's really going on. Um, but the brilliance of Harper Lee's story is that because she's, she doesn't know exactly what's going on necessarily in, in every, um, in all the detail, it allows this really dark story to be told very truthfully. And it allows people who are older than the character scout to, to understand what's going on without it being, you know, without your senses being assaulted with all the horrors of what we hear here. Right. And it was sort of interesting in the movie where Scout, it feels like to me, Scout sort of, even though she's the narrator, she's a little bit pushed to the side in a way. This oh, she feels is. like yeah. This feels like in some ways you're looking through at Atticus Finch through the eyes of Jem more than anybody. Yeah. 
Well, and that was an interesting choice. You absolutely noticed that. Where and, and part of that's just because the book is Scout. Right. And so you can't help but as soon as she's not the front and center but feel like she got shunted to the side a bit. Right. Um, but there is this sense of a father and son angle that starts to come through right. with Jem and his dad and what does it mean to to become a man and to actually be right. a man. You yeah. know, you even hear Atticus Finch talk to his children about that. It's almost not it's not quite Greek chorus, but where he's talking to his children about uh, why he's doing what he's doing. Why is he defending? Because they're starting to experience this pressure right. from the community about around right. like why would you defend? How a can black you defend man? this man exactly? And his children ask him, "So why are you doing it? Like mm-hmm. if so many people think you shouldn't?" And he's like, "Well, because if I didn't." I would never be able to tell you guys not to do anything ever again. I wouldn't have right. any credibility as your father to teach you what's right and wrong yeah. if I didn't do what was right regardless of the pressure. Yeah. And that's sort of what we see Jim observing time and time again is his dad doing what's right yeah. in spite of the pressure and understanding that maybe that's what it takes to be a man much more than the color of your skin. Right, right. And, and it's, it really is sort of this unveiling of a hero in a certain way. I mean, when we first when we first step into the story, there's a lot of talk about Scout and her older brother Jem talking about how old Atticus is and how he can't do anything. And, you know, obviously they love their dad and all this kind of stuff, but he's sort of this, this old fuddy-duddy, right? Yeah, he won't play football. <laughs> he won't play football. <laughs> he won't wrestle his kids to the ground during the 4th of July. You know, he won't do any of this sort of stuff. But as the story unpacks, all of a sudden, Jem especially comes to understand that his dad is more than what he thought he was. There's there's this moment in time where there's this rabid dog running around the streets, and um, it has to be taken care of. And the gun is handed to Atticus Finch, who all of a sudden is revealed to be the best shot in town to, to kill this mad dog. Um, and then just, just sort of the uh, beauty of him defending against a lot of societal pressure, um, defending, even risking his own life in, in one particular scene. Um, this man, all of a sudden, Jem sees his dad as the hero that he truly is. Yeah. No, and, uh, you know, coming back to societal pressure and, and seeing that hero, I have to say this story felt so timely mm-hmm. for our own time. And this movie is over 50 years old Yeah, at this point. And... Uh, as it's it's fascinating the way some authors and filmmakers, frankly, have this ability to tell so, stories so concisely, dealing with and dealing with an issue in their own time by telling a story that was technically thirty plus years prior, mm-hmm. like in the timeline, you know, in the Great Depression era, mm-hmm. and yet it still feel prescient and mm-hmm. relevant to us now. Yeah. And I think there's there's definitely a sense of sobriety around that in mm-hmm. that how are we still still dealing with this, you know, and sort of the oppressiveness of our of human nature and the evils of our hearts, but also it, it tells you something about what the the issue that the author was bringing mm-hmm. and their own 
their own prophetic insight in a way mm-hmm. that it's something that they could tell a story from the past, drop it in the present of their own time, and it still be yeah. as relevant as it is, you know, fifty over fifty years later. Yeah, in this movie, really, you're absolutely right. Not only, not only contextually does it feel very contemporary, but the filmmaking itself holds up extraordinarily well. This is a black and white movie, um, but it feels very contemporary in a certain way. I think that that you have. Um, some really powerful close-ups that you see the the emotion, you see the sweat on these people as they're dealing with these issues. And I think because because of the craftsmanship of the filmmaking, it allows even a modern audience that doesn't necessarily dig old movies, it allows a modern audience to step into the story much more effectively. Yeah. And as you say, Jake, it's it's incredibly resonant. And I think that that these are the sorts of heroes that never go out of style. I think that, that sometimes if you look back at a 1930s or 40s movie where you see, you know, battlefield heroism in, in certain situations or you can go back, sometimes the heroes that we love as kids become more problematic as adults. Um, I think that like my parents, maybe your parents would have felt that with with Custer. You know, Custer would have been a hero back in the day um nowadays it would probably be sitting bull who you know who slaughtered you know <laughs> the whole it, it would it's very it's interesting we don't celebrate columbus day anymore really because right. because columbus has become such a problematic hero even though just in my lifetime he was a hero back when i was first going to school even when i was a kid yeah, so you have you have these contextual heroes, and as we learn more about history, and as we start to um, change our view of some of what went on, things change. In this movie, you have a hero who I don't think ever becomes less heroic. Right. He is as heroic as back in the 1930s as it was in 1960s as he is today, and I think that that the the his ability to stand for something true and something important and do it in a modest but really forceful way, I think it's really powerful. Yeah. And and in the face of spoiler warning for those who haven't read or seen the movie, in the face of extreme disappointment. Of right. What to to still stiffen the spine and move forward and to not be dismayed. Right. Is a is a character trait that I think is underrated yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. We we always we always talk about we like our heroes like that, but we often struggle with that in our own lives. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. face that kind of depressing defeat and to say, well, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to take the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting, I think. Uh it's it's such a powerful powerful statement in some ways. Um, AFI, the American Film Institute, did a list of the greatest American heroes in, in American film, essentially. Yeah. And it has some great names on the top of the list. You know, of course, it has Indiana Jones. It has Rick Blaine from Casablanca. It has Will Kane from High Noon. Um, Ellen Ripley from Aliens. You know, you have all these people who... who are sort of your prototypical action figure fighting um, fighting the good fight, but very literally fighting the good fight in some ways. And they're all worthy selections. But what was number one? Atticus Finch. 
to kill a mockingbird. And I think And I think that that says something. Rightly so. He's mm-hmm. he's the kind of hero we all ought to be. I think we talked about that with Mr. Rogers. Um when we talked about won't you be my neighbor and what it means for each of us to be quietly heroic yeah. in our day-to-day lives and Atticus Finch is that. Even though there is this big moment, that's not right. his only heroic trait. We see multiple other times his faithfulness in community and his yeah. steadfastness with his own children and his neighbors. Yeah. And his willingness to do right by people yeah. is his most heroic trait and frankly might be one of my new favorite movie characters of all time, not just heroes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, and this is this is a little bit of a side, but I'm going to share it with you guys anyway. Sometimes in this crazy job of mine where I review movies for a living, sometimes it seems like there are these themes that pop up and sometimes you wonder why. Are you just are you just more aware of it? Um or is it possible that God's trying to tell you something? This year has been a time when I have seen a lot of really quiet, principled heroes in action. And I think that this is, this is a prime example of it. Um, I, I really enjoyed this movie. As much as I enjoyed the movie, I think I enjoyed the book better. But, man, the movie is really worth watching. Yeah. With that, Paul... What would you rate To Kill a Mockingbird on your scale of 1 to 10? You know what? I would – I think I would give it – I think I would give it a 9. Yeah. Honestly, I think I would give it a 9. I think that Gregory Peck, who won the Academy Award for Best Actor for this, is incredible in this movie. He is really good and there are so many memorable moments. I think – uh, my favorite moment is after the trial. Um, you have, you can tell that the, the courtroom is very segregated, and all on the balcony, you have all the black citizens of the town and the surrounding area, and everybody else in the courtroom is filed out. And Gregory Peck, Atticus Finch is just putting his papers in, and he starts walking out, and uh, and one of the people tells Scout essentially um, says, "Stand up." your father's passing. That's a really powerful... It's one of my favorite moments in any movie, actually. I just love that moment. I got chills just hearing you (laughs) remind me of it. And, you know, we really ought to have this conversation in another episode of, like, the best movie openers ever. The opening title sequence. Oh, it was great. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was. It was riveting, and it felt so modern again. Yes. I almost – I literally thought I had started the wrong thing. Right, right. When it started. That's what struck me as well. it felt so crisp and fresh and modern. It did not feel dated at all. Yeah, yeah. It felt very – it felt very stylistic. It felt very – in some ways metaphorical. You see some of these things that pop up later on in the story. It was was beautifully done. You're right. I'm glad you mentioned that. And it foreshadowed – yeah, like you said, it foreshadowed things to come later and the simplicity of just hearing the child's Mm. voice kind of humming to themselves. Oh, my word. Yeah. Like that that alone, I almost had to stop and just like – Soak it in. Soak for a second because it was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And no one ever talks about it, but it really is one of the – How? Yeah. Like after watching, I'm like, this has got to be one of the best movie – at least opening credits ever. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. So, Jake, what would you rate? I was going to give it a nine. I think this is one of the rare times where you and I are – Oh my destined goodness. To, to agree with one another. Well, that's, that's it was coming in at a strong nine for me. Like I said, Atticus Finch quickly rocketed into 
the upper echelon of my appreciation for movie characters. I think he might be one of the best film dads of all time, one of the best film heroes of all time, one of the best characters. He's just – there's something – and you know what? This is personal to me in that I have a penchant for strong father figures in film. And as strong as he is, he doesn't feel – he doesn't feel glossed over again or whitewashed. Right. He he gets grumpy and he doesn't always play with his kids. You know, sometimes he's a little distant, but at the same time he's present and he's consistent and he's there and he's strong. And so I thought that depiction of fatherhood was just really inspiring. A plus. Depiction so, of fatherhood, A plus yeah, for sure. That 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 will almost always get me. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, I, a strong depiction of fatherhood is just going to kill me. I time. totally hear you. Which is which is almost a really good segue to what we're going to be talking about in the car a little later on in this episode, right? That's true. Like after you pick off, well, you're not going to pick me off, but <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> but after you pick the next film for us to watch off my backlist, we're going to kick it over to Jake and Paul. That's Talking right. Talking about fatherhood. Talking about fatherhood in another way. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So with that, Paul, you got to pick off uh, of my backlist for the next episode. I've got Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poets Society, as you can see here, left on our current backlist lists of shame. Yeah, well, for me, this is no contest, honestly, it, because you've got a movie that I sort of appreciated but didn't really like very much versus a movie that really spoke to me in a really powerful way when I first saw it ages and ages and ages ago. So, Jake, you get to watch Dead Poet Society. Dead Poet Society. This was ages ago because this is from the year of my birth. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you so much. I saw this when I was in college. <laughs> so there you have it. We're going to watch Dead Poet Society. It's on Netflix. So yes. you guys can watch along You can watch us. along. And uh, we'll all see what we think together. Yeah, you know what? This has sort of been a theme because To Kill a Mockingbird was on, was Netflix. on Netflix as well. Yeah, so watch along these, watch these movies with us. Call in, call in our show, <laughs> and you can speak to us about these. Well, if we yeah, or, or you can tweet to us or tweet to us. Yeah, yeah tell you, us what you've you got. You've got a Twitter handle. I do. I have a Twitter handle. It's at AC Paul, and you do too. Yeah, it's at Jake underscore Roberson. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Thanks for setting it up like that. <laughs> so, dude, watch these movies. Tweet us what you think. Yeah. You know, we'd we'd love to. We'll we'll throw your thoughts on the air yeah. potentially. Thinking of if they're not dumb. <laughs> or you know what, dumber they are, the more likely they that, be that at, is to true. end up on it. I don't I mean, know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make any guarantees either way. But uh, with that, with that, we're gonna kick it over to uh, two people that coincidentally are also named Jake and Paul. Coincidentally, they're driving in a car down a highway. It, the traffic's a little bit backed up. A little bit from backed what up. we've heard about. Yes. And uh, but we're we're actually throwing you back through time to a live segment that they're taping. Right after they've seen Incredibles 2. We need, like, sound effects. This technology is pretty incredible. We can't get call-ins. Yeah. We can't do call-ins because, yeah. you know, that's low-tech. We're not low-tech. We're not low-tech. We're, we're, we spend all of our budget on time travel for, for live segments in the car. So without further ado, let's kick it over to Jake and Paul. Thanks, Jake and Paul, for kicking it over to us live in Paul's Honda Fit. Man, that Paul, he is super bright. 
He's super a, intelligent. He is just a real catch. A real <laughs> catch, that Paul guy. Yes. And, uh, well, Jake will... You know what? He tries. Jake tries. He tries really hard, and I think it's nice that Paul lets him be on his podcast. It's cute. It is cute. It's adorable. Like, yeah. it should go viral how nice Paul is to Jake for yeah. how hard Jake tries. So kind, so generous, yeah. so giving. A philanthropist of the best kind. Exactly. Right. But here we are live in the vehicle. Yes, in my vehicle. In Paul's Honda Fit. Doing the acoustics a- are fantastic here. So good to get a nice little rumble strip going in the background. <laughs> the air streaming by us. It's like white noise. People like white noise. Yes, they do. Listen to the pop culture with fanboy and know it all for all your white noise needs. <laughs> but we're bringing you a, another dashboard review. We did this a couple months ago talking Justice League. It was very successful, only you could only hear one of us. Yeah, it was. Uh, we had some uh, microphone troubles. Technical where difficulties. Only one of the microphones was working, so one of us sounded like he was right up in your face, and the other one was off in the distance shouting ignorantly. <laughs> I'll let you guys decide who was who. Who was who? But, you know, every once in a while you might hear us a little bit better because we're fighting some traffic. Yes, yes. We're, we just are fighting traffic right now. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Paul's 1960s sound effects. Crash. There's Bang. lightning. Oof. Mountains and forests around us. Really, the, I mean, I wish you guys could see this. It's a very attractive picture. I mean, what a, we're stuck in traffic. But what a time, Paul, where we can be stuck in traffic in an air-conditioned vehicle. Yeah. Rolling through forests and cliff sides. Yeah. And recording a podcast. Yeah. Not only can we talk to each other, we can talk to lots of other people, too, without even opening our windows. And it's, that's very nice. Yeah. Uh, it's way better than when you were shouting at that one guy well, we for cutting you off. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Paul's got a bit of a temper. Yeah, well, that was... He's got to have He's got to have a flaw to offset how nice he is to Jake. <laughs> you know, content caveat. That was that, was that scene. So, it's fitting that we have to talk about, you know, how you have a weakness. <laughs> because every good superhero has a weakness. And uh, today we're talking about a bunch of superheroes who have a few weaknesses. A few weaknesses. And a lot of great strengths. And that is the Parr family. Yes, correct. The the family from The Incredibles. Pixar's fantastic um, superhero movie that was released when, what, probably 2000-something. Yeah, you know, over a decade ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm holding two microphones and Paul's driving. <laughs> So my research capabilities yeah. are limited. Let's just say 2008. I should have done some pre-core. No, no, I should let's, have done some research. Say, let's say 2007, 2008, right around there. Yeah, I think I think it might have even been even before that. Yeah. Anyway, but, it was a great know, movie. Over a decade ago. And like uh, like every great movie these days, it now comes with its own sequel. They decided to make a sequel of it. Um, and Jake, I've got to ask you, you're a big fan of the original Incredibles. So what did you think of this one? I have to say, I had pretty high expectations coming into this movie because of how much I enjoyed the first one and because of how much I enjoyed Brad Bird as a director. You know, uh, of course, he's famous for The Incredibles and also The Iron Giant. The Both Iron Giant. A are classic. Classic, fantastic animated movies that they're for the kids, but they're really for the adults. Right, right. And so I had high hopes for Incredibles 2, um, even though they were tempered somewhat by it being a sequel. Right. 
But I, I don't begrudge movies too much for existing as sequels. Well, we've seen so many good sequels come down the road. And, and to be honest with you, I have I have a bias against sequels. As much as I like, <laughs> I like franchises that have 17 sequels potentially. Um, it's one of those things where where I do like original movies. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about Pixar is that it's always done original movies until just recently. We saw Cars 2, we saw Monsters University, uh, obviously all the Toy Story movies, Toy Story movies. I was going to say, well, Toy Story 2, everybody forgets about that when they say it's a rash no, of it's Pixar sequels. Yes, the rash is new, but they had done a sequel before in Toy Story 2. Correct, correct. But it's because it was better even than Toy Story 1. Well, and that's the thing. When you look at the Toy Story movies, those were really quality sequels. Really fantastic movies in their own right. And a lot of people do say that Toy Story 2 is better. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it was darn close. You've heard it said. I've heard it said. I've heard it said by you. Yeah, so as to how I felt, you know, now that I've gotten my expectations out of the way, I've really enjoyed myself. So did you enjoy it as much as you thought you would? More? Less? I have to say, I think I enjoyed it probably just about about as much as I ex- hoped and expected I would. Oh, good. I would. That's yeah. very nice. That's very nice. Yeah, which is a nice feeling to have when you have decent expectations for a film, like decently high expectations for a film, and it actually lives up to it. Yeah, yeah. So... We'll just, we'll just set up the plot really quickly for anyone who, hopefully you have all seen this because Jake, like always, wants to do a spoiler-heavy version. We're, we're going to leave out the big spoiler, though. So, but just to let you folks know, kind of, or remind you what, what went on, um, when the movie opens, superheroes are still illegal, essentially. I mean, this opens right on the tail of where Incredibles 1 closed. Exactly, exactly. So nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Uh, the family is, of course, closer and tighter together, um, and they still do sort of surreptitious superhero work. Um, but technically, they're not allowed. It's it's against the law for them to do their thing. But then in comes uh, this tycoon, this very wealthy tycoon, who has a long love of superheroes. His, his father loves superheroes, and he wants to encourage the world through... A, essentially a publicity campaign to, to say that superheroes are really not that dangerous. They're super great for humanity. We should really not outlaw them. We should allow them to be the super people that they really are. And so he and his sister, who is sort of the brains behind the operation, she designs a lot of the the special equipment that they use for, for this publicity campaign. They take... Um, the, the superheroes under their wing, particularly the Incredibles family, um, Bob and Ellen. Ellen, thank you. Um, under their wing, and they push actually Ellen, Elastigirl, out into the forefront of their campaign. They believe that she is going to be really the key to get superheroes back accepted in the world and legalized once again. And there you have it. There you That's go. it. There you go. No, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. And I think that's what's great and what what we enjoyed about the first Incredibles movie that's recaptured here. I think that's that's always the tricky thing when you recapture when you're trying to make a sequel to a movie that had such a fun and unique concept like the Incredibles did is how do you capture lightning in the bottle without making it right. the exact same movie? Right. Of course there's a lot of those 
criticisms about uh, The Force Awakens. And in some senses, it hits familiar beats in that regard. We're still still dealing with a superhero family that's very normal in a lot of ways, except yes. for their superhero abilities. Exactly. And so we're dealing with humanity. We're dealing with parenting, and we're dealing with marriage. We're dealing with, uh, you know, adults trying to find their way as human beings, and what does it mean to be a good spouse and to be a good parent but yeah. to still follow your own passion yeah you know a lot of those themes that we felt because we're picking up right where Incredibles left off yeah carry over right and yet they still find a way to put a put a unique angle yeah. on it and Absolutely. they mix up the formula in such a way that it doesn't feel like it's a complete retread of the first movie and I think that that's one thing about the Pixar movies that we've typically seen from them, and I think that we've even heard people from the Pixar studios talk about this, where um, they never want to make a sequel unless there's a legitimate story to tell. And I think almost every sequel maker would probably say that. Some of them are lying. You kind of get the the impression from the Pixar folks that they're telling the truth. And this really did feel like a, a really viable, standalone story. Um, it's... And, and one of the things that I loved about it is is how it portrayed parenthood. And, and in some ways, it really stressed in some ways that that during the movie, Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible are sort of split apart. Elastigirl must head up this publicity campaign, which leaves Mr. Incredible as sort of this stay-at-home dad, a role that he's not very familiar with. And he struggles in that role. I don't think it would be a spoiler to say that. Um, and the movie sort of illustrates, I think, that in some ways the real hero, at least throughout the first half of the movie, is really Mr. Incredible. He works harder. He works far more thanklessly um, to help his son do his math homework, to help his daughter, to, to patch things up with his daughter, to deal with their new baby who has an incredible amount of superpowers that they have no idea what to deal with. So he has a lot on his plate, and he loses a lot of sleep. And you see uh, through him just what it means to be a parent, how hard and how rewarding and really how heroic being a parent can be. And I know, Jake, as a parent of four, you know all about that. Oh, yeah. I resonated with that. You know, especially with as, you know, being a dad who has worked outside the home, um, but also tries to take those opportunities to let my wife... Uh, you know, pursue the things that she's passionate about. When you step back into the home, you know, for a whole day or more to take care of the kids, you realize just how hard and thankless that work is. And that's captured so well here. Yeah. And how even when you're doing a great job, even when you're a committed parent, it's exhausting work. And things don't always work out and right. They don't always work out the way you want them to. And yet the true victory and the true superpower is continuing to move ahead and continuing to find new ways to solve problems and to, you know what, own up to your weaknesses with your kids, own up to your failures with your kids. And there's some powerful moments inside this kids movie about superheroes that speak to that and that was impressive to me. Yeah, yeah. I thought one of the most poignant moments for me was uh, was when Mr. Incredible uh, sits down on the couch and you know, his daughter is mad at him and he is just worn to a frazzle. He sits down and he confesses just what a bad job he feels like he's doing as a parent. And then he falls dead asleep as his daughter 
who realizes what he's been trying to do for her suddenly realizes the sacrifices that he's made not only for her but for everybody and so he falls dead asleep he wakes up 17 hours later she's there giving him breakfast or a cookie or something like that saying thought it was just best to let you sleep and I thought that there was there was some in in the context of a superhero cartoon that would felt very realistic and very um, emotional to me where you have you have just this desire to so all of a sudden when you realize as a, as a, as a child that your parent needs support too that's kind of a that's kind of a critical moment in a lot of kids lives it really is and the fact that they shoehorn that they don't shoehorn it what I was going to say, I, I, I almost used that term. I did use that term, but it's not appropriate. It feels so organic to the story that they tell here in the midst of what feels like a very sleek, very old school, very slick spy meets superhero movie. Yeah. And that has some pretty credible action sequences to boot. Yeah. That was actually one of the things that I really loved about this, this movie was the style of it. Um... I love the sort of 1960s vibe, the big bang, big bang, big band sound right. that went along with it. This sort of this sort of jazz vibe that it was lending to itself. It very it felt very hip, very retro, while still being very in the moment. And I think that that was that was a charming thing about this movie. It was it was very well crafted and well put together. Yeah, if there's one thing Brad Bird just continues to solidify here, it's that he has this panache for taking the past and these this very stylish view of the past and somehow making it feel new and modern while still feeling nostalgic like it's it's a it's a pretty fascinating thing he's able to pull off but he did it in the iron giant he did it in the first incredibles and he does it again here yeah i also thought that the the villain in this movie was very compelling um, it's a character known as the Screen Slaver, and as as a critic who tends to be critical of overuse of screens, I think that it had some some interesting messages to me. And essentially, the the villain controls people's minds through screens. I think that in some ways that was, um, and I think you mentioned it before we we started the show, Jake, that it was an interesting. It was an interesting theme to sort of follow, and the movie didn't necessarily follow as well as you might have liked. Right. Yeah, you know, it was it was one place where the villain was almost a little too on the nose. Like, right. if you're going to say there's a weakness in The Incredibles 2, the screen slaver is almost a little too on the nose for our modern moment. Like, it's, it's I think it's great to incorporate villains and themes that feel relevant to our time it was just almost too much so but and and then in spite of how on the nose it is i didn't feel like they quite followed it up enough i think there's a lot the the where they were starting with the villain the mm-hmm. screen slaver and i don't want to get into any spoilers so i won't but where they started versus how they kind of ended with screen slaver felt a little bit disappointing i wanted a little bit more uh, I guess I wanted a little bit more Killmonger. I lo- wanted a little bit more, you know, back. Yeah. I wanted a little bit more beefiness behind the beef. Right, right. That, that Screen Slaver had. But that being said, the what they do with them at the start was from a, a tone perspective where it could have felt 
on the nose and cheesy. It felt creepy, yeah. like appropriately. Yes, it and did it feel felt creepy. And so it, and uh, so they found a way to make it feel authentic to the movie. And so I really appreciated how they introduced Screenslaver and what kind of the ambiance that he gave the film. Yeah. Another thing that I really enjoyed about this film is it was pretty funny. Oh, I it thought was. that the, the the baby, little Jack Jack, was one of the best parts of the movie. And, and I kind of sometimes worry that, that, you know, cute kids, sometimes their cuteness can go only so far. This baby, the cuteness could go all the way to the moon. I just, I thought that, that the kid really brought a lot to the table. Um, there's a scene early on where where Jack-Jack, who uh, has all these powers, but has no idea how to control them because he's a baby. He's a baby. He tangles with a raccoon, and I really felt bad for the raccoon after a while, but it was a really hilarious scene. Yeah, I think, I, I see how there could have been a temptation to your point about using him too much. Yeah. That is valid, because you have movies like the Despicable Me series, mm-hmm. where you know, they do the first movie and it's like, oh, everybody likes these minions, so now let's do a ton of minion stuff. And, oh, let's do a minions movie. And I think there was that potential with Jack-Jack where right. you had that short, you know, that came out, yeah. the Jack-Jack attack short, and you're like, okay, this could, is this what the whole next movie is going to be? Especially when you watch the trailers right. and they really emphasize Jack-Jack. But I thought that the the way they balanced him with the rest of the story exactly. really worked well and added just a nice change of pace. It really did. And, and that, that's the other thing. Not only can, can babies take over because of their cuteness, but in this context, Jack-Jack could have taken over just because he has so many powers. And they didn't allow that. The powers were, they were helpful at times. They were harmful at other times. Um, but they didn't overwhelm the movie. This was still a, a movie about the entire family. Right. And... Again, that's that's something that's rare to that that Pixar has a knack for to give all the characters to flesh out all the characters and make them feel real and, and vibrant and people who you can who you can know and really like and I, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, there's a lot to relate to, Paul. If you have to put a movie, which or a movie, if you have to put a number to this movie, and you do because I'm making you, <laughs> and I know we've just you know we've just come from watching it, but. Your gut reaction, what number, 1 to 10, do you give Incredibles to? Yeah, you know, in some ways, to put it to put it as a number, I think I have to almost sort of mentally rank it with, with where I would put other Pixar movies. Yeah. Up is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love Finding Nemo, Finding Dory. Uh, I thought that, that WALL-E was just brilliant. Inside Out was just brilliant. This I wouldn't put on a level with with any of those, quite frankly. It was really enjoyable. It was really fun. Um, it had some great messages, but it didn't it didn't like twist my heart like some of those other ones. So I would think I would give it a nice solid seven and a half. All right. Yeah, I I would agree with you. It didn't quite ever slug you with emotion the way Up does, or the way a Finding Dory does, or a Finding Nemo. However. I still thought that what it did was more nuanced with its emotion. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't an emotional knockout, but I thought the nuance that they capture in the family was strong enough that I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of ten. Woo! Wow. So right about 2001 territory is what you're saying. (laughs) 
if you're referring to 2001 Space Odyssey, you would be incorrect. That is not what I ranked that movie. Mm. How about a solid half half um, star for that one? You know, you disappoint me so much, Jake. I do. That's my goal in life anymore. You have reached it. Your life is complete. Now it's just to see how low I can go <laughs> on your scale of disappointment, Paul. Where would you put me on a negative one to ten <laughs> right now? Right now, it would be negative... 32? Negative 32. All right. Let's see how low I can go, people. Right. Keep track with me. But if you've seen Incredibles 2, what did you think about it? How did it stack up to the first one? How does it stack up to other Pixar? What do you think about the family, the action, the villain? We want to know what you think. And uh, so you hit us up on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But before we go, we're going to kick it back to Jake and Paul in the studio for the most least important thing. Have fun, guys. Those guys sound great. <laughs> they sound so like real stand-up, brilliant human beings. Yeah, and one of them was even driving. Coming up with driving thoughts. as he was being brilliant. Yeah, and dodging, like crashes and yeah. bouncing tires along the roadway. I yeah. thought it was pretty I impressive. mean, I'm just glad that they, they're survived. on the show with us. Yeah. And, that, and that they survived. Yeah, yeah. that too. That yeah. too. But here we are inside the most least important thing. They they even kicked it over to us for the final segment of the show, which is a brilliant thing yeah. in and of itself. Uh, and it's where we talk about whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. And we decide how big of a deal we think it should be. Yeah. Now that's, that's the most really... or the least. <laughs> yeah. Finally, you actually just told the honest truth. It's about whatever we want. Which is the beauty of this segment. Yes. Paul, what is the whatever you want to talk about? Right well, now? I really wanted to talk about Elder Scrolls Six, but it, as we mentioned, it will be, I'm sure, 20 years away. So there's not much to say about it. What I'd But really like you to are talk, excited for it. I am excited for it. I'll I give you a wait. twofer. I'll give you a twofer. What's the second thing? Okay. So what I'd like to talk about is actually I would. every once in a while I, I like to look at what has coming or what has come to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and all that sort of stuff because, you know, you kind of need to keep your queue updated. Yeah. Really excited that one of my very favorite movies uh, is showing up on Amazon Prime now for July. Ooh. And the name of it, the movie is Gran Torino. Gran Torino. A little Clint Eastwood joint. That is exactly right. Clint Eastwood is one of my favorite directors, actually. And although sometimes he can blow a little bit hot and cold, I think that he has a really fantastic knack of telling a, a powerful story in a sort of subtle way. I mean, he uh, he really is just sort of a straightforward storyteller. This is actually, I think, his last acting job. He was going to retire from acting after this, so he also stars in this movie. But when we talk about um, the fathers and the father figures that we've seen here, this is a little bit like that. This is a hard R-rated movie. It is violent. There is a lot of language. Content caveats all over the place. But it's a beautiful story about this grumpy old man who sort of develops this fatherly attachment to a few of his Hmong, Hmong neighbors who have sort of come into this neighborhood that he's lived in for maybe 50 years. Yeah. And it all sort of revolves around how one of these neighbors tries to steal uh, Clint Eastwood, the Clint Eastwood character's prized Gran Torino. 
and how that becomes a catalyst for a really beautiful father-son relationship. And where it leads to is powerful and unexpected and I think profound. It was one of my very favorite movies of 2008. And as long as you're you know, able to deal with the language, it is worth seeing. Yeah. For sure. This would have been like in your early days of Plugged In, right? It really was. It was It was one of the first... Because um, I remember reading this review. Yeah. This was, this was actually... This is inside baseball, but obviously it's a hard R-rated movie. Um, in the context of Plugged In, we take content really, really seriously. Yeah. Because I loved the movie... And because I had to deal with the content, this was probably my first real trip in, in trying to navigate that world of dealing with the content that we see here with a really powerful story and trying to give both credit, yeah. trying to do justice to both. And so because of that, it's it's one of the, mo- the movie reviews that I remember writing the most, actually, just because it was really that first exercise. Yeah. Um, in this context, again... I can be a little bit more free to say this is a great movie. It really is a powerful movie that has some incredible messages at the end of it. And and again, if you like father-son stories, this is one for you. I know it's going to be added to my queue shortly. <laughs> Weirdly, my Amazon Prime queue has been filling up recently mm. due to Paul. Really? Uh, yeah. You know, we we so this is a an aside, but um, this one, Gran Torino, which. Uh, I'm now very excited about. So you haven't seen it? I've not seen Gran Torino, but I actually do remember reading the plugged-in review for mm. it. And be, it being one of those where it's like, I can tell that they actually like liked this movie, <laughs> even though they can't give it a two thumbs up. Um, but uh, I also have this one in my Amazon Prime queue that I added, and it's the best worst movie ever made documentary about... Oh. The terrible movie Troll 2. Because we did a Mystery Science Theater night at Paul's house, a group of us, and we watched Troll 2, which is, I, I, I guarantee, as bad as you think it is, it's going to deliver on its badness and be hilarious. It so was pretty bad. Just invite people over, do a Mystery Science Theater night where you just get a comment and all the badness as you watch. It's hilarious. But there's a documentary about it. Yep. I gotta, I, it's going into my queue right now, yeah. as a matter and of fact. So I've got to watch that as well. All right. A documentary about we'll, Troll we'll, 2. We'll report back. And Gran Torino. All right. So from the- <laughs> quite the triple play documentary on Troll 2, Gran Torino. They're very different movies, I would imagine. I, so, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? we watched it. It's like Schrodinger's cat. Exactly. When they're unwatched, they could be exactly the same. <laughs> In theory. In theory. In theory. One of them could be clickbait with the title. So... There you go. All right, so for my most least important thing, I've been kind of in the social media world a lot recently. I know I talked about being at the social shakeup in Atlanta and Field of Dreams, and I know I talked about uh, you know Kelly Marie Tran and all the ridiculous Star Wars jerk boys who ran her off social media. Uh, but I'm in social media again this time in that uh, there's some good to be had on social media. And this this gal named Rosie Blair – recently like had a thread like this is like a 30 40 tweet thread go viral because she and her boyfriend were getting on a flight and they didn't have seats together but they asked the gal that was going to sit next to her boyfriend if they could switch seats and this gal on the plane obliged which was very nice of her because she obviously didn't have to 
but she obliged. And so then as this gal, Rosie, who created this Twitter thread, sits down with her boyfriend, she's like, you know, she's joking with him and she's like – because they're trying to assuage the guilt of making people move seats. (laughs) And she's like, hey, I bet she'll meet the love of her life on this plane. And their seats were like a row apart. So like Um, literally this girl just moves one seat in front of them. Well, then she starts – they notice that the girl – and the guy start chatting it up and they're both fitness types and they start talking and they start leaning closer. And, and so she just starts documenting this through her. Oh my goodness. She buys – she has free Wi-Fi for like an hour on her flight. And so she starts documenting via her Instagram story this ongoing – the developing relationship of the people in the seat in front of her with pictures through the through oh the tiny little crack goodness. of like their – like she's analyzing how close their elbows are <laughs> and are their T-shirts touching. And she's telling you what she can hear about their conversation. And it becomes – this like for, she starts buying extra internet after her free hour expires so that she can keep documenting the developing oh, relationship of the people in front of her and literally follows them out of the plane taking pictures of them as they go to the baggage claim oh my and they goodness. trade instagram accounts and they follow them on instagram and like it ends up being this whole love story as told by an instagram story just because this girl wanted to sit next to her boyfriend on the airplane. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I have two reactions to that. <laughs> One is, yeah, that's a pretty cool story. The other is, what an invasion of privacy, right? It, it totally could be. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's an I element would not of creepiness want, to I it. would not want some stranger yeah. taping my interaction with my wife, even if it was the most positive reaction, and then posting it on an right. Instagram. Now, I will give Rosie credit for this. Anytime their face was even shown in profile, she actually scribbled it out. Well, that is good. And so, in spite of the fact that she still took, like, <laughs> a couple of dozen pictures of them, she at least... Pretend, she at least tried to give them yeah. more so than some people do. Right. I mean, some people. There was a gal, a mo- like a, a model in California that got like jail time and community service time because she took a picture of a lady naked in the locker room at her gym to fat shame her. And so there are people that are just horrendous human beings who don't give each other any courtesy. So at least she had a little bit of courtesy. Yeah. Yeah. But it is it is weird that it's like at any given point I have no idea who's just like surreptitiously yeah. snapping Instagram stories of what I'm doing right now. Right, right. But it is a reminder and, and like you say, I mean there's there is something kind of cool about it at the same time and it is just sort of a reminder of of just how fascinating we all are in certain moments. You know, and we all have these we all have our own stories that we're going through and and there is there's power in those stories, you know? And I think that just the fact that it became such a sensation speaks to that. I think yeah. that, that we can get involved with two strangers who we have no idea who they are. Even the person telling the story really has no idea who no. they are. Um, and we can get wrapped up in it and became, it can become really important to us in a really strange sort of way. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating illustration. Yeah, some and of the, the power of, of social media to tell stories in new and different ways. Right. You couldn't tell stories like that 10 years ago. Yeah. And it, it, people were following along like in real time. She, some of the pictures in her Twitter thread are of pictures of people following oh. her Instagram story where they're like literally stopping what they're doing. Like one person – took their break at work 
so that they could go watch how this oh story unfolded. Another person went and like got oh. in their sweats and poured themselves a glass of wine so that they could watch the rest of the story. So creepy. So uh, creepy. <laughs> it's, it's a whole thing, people. Oh, it is man. a whole thing. Man, oh, man. So there you have it. Her, uh, if if you want to see the story for yourself, the Twitter handle, the gal's name is Rosie Blair, R-O-S-E-Y-B-L-A-I-R. Her handle on Twitter is at Rosie, R-O-S-E-Y, Beam, B-E-E-M-E. Check it out. It's got over 334,000 retweets. Goodness gracious. That's, That's amazing. Like just, just some person, you know, yeah. observing the story. Crazy. Yeah. I don't think any of my tweets have done that well. No, no. You know what? Never that well. Not even my Chris <laughs> Pratt. Not even my Not Chris, even Pratt. Chris Pratt. My Chris Pratt quote tweet didn't even get that many. <sighs> Too bad. <laughs> uh, but there you have it for the most least important thing. What was the most least important thing you've seen this week? Let us know <laughs> on the Twitter. As we said before, I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. We will catch you guys on the flip side. Bye.